Hello and welcome to The Word, our new occasional series which invites guests to talk about themselves in a way they've never done before. I'm Louisa Fox, and in each edition of The Word, I'll be peering into the inner lives of my guests through an unusual route, their favourite passages of the Bible. We'll be talking about why they chose them and what their selection says about them. And each of their choices will be read by the actor David Suchet, better known as TV's Poirot. We're part of things unseen, for people who think there's more to life than the material world. Today I'll be speaking to a lady who at age 16, growing up in Jamaica, felt the calling to be a priest, when the thought of women priests in the Church of England was, well, unthinkable. However, in 1994, more than 25 years later, she was among the first women to be ordained. Four years later, she became vicar at a failing parish in Hackney, which at that point had an average congregation of 12, and within nine years the number had grown to over 130. In 2007, she was appointed as one of the Queen's chaplains, and less than five years later, she was the first black woman to be made Speaker's chaplain. This is a role which sees her pray daily for the souls of our government ministers in the Houses of Parliament. Rose Hudson-Wilkin... Welcome to The Word. Thank you. Rose, let's go straight into your first verse, which is taken from the first epistle of John, and it's chapter 4, verse 20. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. Why is this verse significant to you? I think, for me, that verse underpins the relationship that we share with the world, really, because it's not just about those who are also Christians or those who are my blood relatives. I have this overwhelming sense that I belong to a heavenly father. And as such, we are all his children. And it seems to me that as part of that large family I have a responsibility to respond in love to my brothers and sisters, irrespective of color, culture, creed, religion, etc. And so very often we think of our relationship with God as a private thing. We have a sort of vertical almost uh, relationship with God. And yet without the horizontal relationship with each other, then how can we truly be connected to God? Because we experience God, I believe, through each other, through the kindnesses that someone dares to show you. You get a touch of the divine, as it were. I mean, that kind of love, it's a beautiful idea, but other times when it's difficult to love everybody... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. As a matter of fact, there is a passage in Scripture where Jesus says, you know, what gain is it if you only love the ones who love you? You know, there are some prickly ones. When I went to my parish in Hackney, they had a tradition of calling their vicar father. I was their first female vicar. And so the very first Sunday, I stood in front of them with my arms outstretched and I said, I am obviously not father. (laughs) And I said, I'm not your mother either, but please call me Rose. Those of you who are struggling to call your priest by the first name, you can say Reverend Rose. The children, they call me Sister Rose, but I'm happy and comfortable to be called by my name. 
And this man uh, said, oh, wonderful, a rose. A rose is beautiful. And I said, but don't forget that roses have thorns. (laughs) But I think we do not have an option as Christians. Love is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. I'm interested in the kind of boundaries of that love or maybe the place between love and discipline because you've been quite outspoken about society's tolerance for teenage parents. You said rather than increasing sex education, there should be more of a focus on self-discipline mm. to address the issue. How do you reconcile that view with the type of love that you're talking about? You see, we sometimes mistake love as a sort of something sort of fuzzy, a sort of fuzzy feeling. And if it's a fuzzy feeling, then, you know, one minute you feel like this and the next minute you don't feel like it. And so it's a sort of anything goes. And actually, I don't think it's like that. It's it's actually like being a good parent. If you're a good parent, then what you do, you'd never cease loving your child, irrespective of what your child does. But what you are clear about is saying, these are the boundaries. These are my expectations of what at this age I expect you to explore or not explore to do or not to do. And if you go over those boundaries, there are going to be consequences. The consequences may well be that I punish you, but the consequences may even be greater. And the greater consequence, I think, is the pickle you find yourself in, which will probably be worse than my punishment. That tough love, I I really appreciate that. But how in that case do you show love in a practical way in in our society for people who are right on the periphery, the refugees or the asylum seekers? How does it translate into those more vulnerable areas? It translates into those vulnerable areas, I believe, when we touch something called compassion. Because in a sense, we need to get to that place where that love is not a chore or a duty, but we do it out of compassion. Time and time again in the Gospels, I am particularly moved by a passage of Scripture where it says, Jesus was moved with compassion. In other words, when he reached out to people, it is actually because he was touched by their circumstances. And so he just had to reach out to them. And I think for those who are on the fringes of society, every time I pass someone on the street, I am moved. And I am moved to the extent, do I give them money? I find myself wrestling with that. Do I just hand them money? Do I take them into the shop and get them a cup of tea? Or do I go into the shop, bring it out and say, would you like a cup of tea or coffee? Do they need clothing? What are their needs? I pray for them every time I go by. I don't just walk by. If they ask me for money, then I would often engage them in conversation. If I'm not sort of rushing, I say, sweetheart, how did you get to this place? Talk to me because I want to understand. I want our governments, our local and national to create laws or policies that are compassionate so that it meets the needs of those who are on the fringes of society. And I was going to ask you about that because being in the heart of government in some respects as you are, when you look at our 
politicians, our government, our policies, our laws. Do you see that compassion being enacted? I mean, for example, immigration. One of the struggles we're having now in terms of immigration and a number of people have been speaking about these vans going around telling people to go home. Let's face it, there is a national, some people may call it a crisis, there is a national concern, and we can't sweep it under the carpet, so to speak, a concern that if we have large numbers of people moving into an area, that it impinges on the social structure in that area. I am not dismissing the concerns that people genuinely have. However, what I fear is that what we are seeing is a little bit of a hype. I feel actually that it is the newspapers that is setting this agenda. And unfortunately, some, not all, people who live life in the political arena picks up on these things and they think, oh, we better do something about it, otherwise we won't get voted in. If the public thinks this, then we have to do that. What I would like to see is for governments, politicians generally, to be much more aware that on a subject matter like this, where you are dealing with vulnerable people, then it is not good enough simply to go with the headlines that the newspaper brings. And so, for example, I believe that this is not just a national problem or challenge. I think it is an international one. So what I want to see, governments in the West, countries in the West, They need to do their endeavor best in terms of their international relationships to ensure that those countries where people are coming from have got the foundation of good governments and good work opportunities, etc., so that people don't start leaving their own places. I need to ensure that it's not just, I'm not just concerned about my quality of life, but also that I'm concerned about the quality of life of my brothers and sisters. Let's hear your second passage. This is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why is that passage important to you? I guess this passage could be a political manifesto, (laughs) where again we see Jesus genuinely interested in people's life. As I grew in my faith, I recognize that actually, God was not interested in a holy bit of me. There wasn't a holy box that I could open and close on a particular day or time, and that's the end of that bit, and that was the only bit that God was interested in. I discovered as I grew in my faith, and in particular through passages like that, that actually God was interested in my everyday life. He was interested in whether or not I was hungry, 
whether people are hungry. He is interested in whether they have very little or whether there is enough for them. He wanted their whole lives to be better. Actually, there's this other beautiful verse where our Lord said, I am come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And it seems to me that this passage speaks of abundant life. I'm going to give you abundant life. Okay, you may not all be millionaires, but how can you be content with what you have been blessed with without coveting something more? What this passage does, I believe, it speaks to those who have nothing. It speaks to those who are often seen as society's outcast. And it says, come, you are part of the fold. You belong. You are special. You are mine. And I identify with that because I think as a child growing up in what would be regarded, I suspect now, as poverty, it was through my faith, through passages like that, that I grew taller in stature because I suddenly recognized that I was a child of the king. I was an heir. I had been adopted by him. And all these words were not just words on a page, but they were speaking to me. You walk the corridors of power as the speakers and Queen's chaplain. And then you're in the streets of Hackney as an inner city priest. Where do you feel spiritually more at home? That's an interesting question. I have always been drawn to places that I can only describe as being gritty. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been drawn to to those sorts of places. Are you including the Houses of Parliament? Well, (laughs) that's an interesting... um, you, You see, when you look at Hackney and Parliament, it's two different worlds, Mm -hmm. two different worlds. However, human nature being what it is, people are people, wherever they are. So even if you have a sort of homogenous group there and another homogenous group there, they still have needs uh, to be met. They are still people to be loved. And I think one of my greatest gifts is the capacity to love and to reach out to people in whatever their circumstances. And so because I love people, then I am drawn, yes, to the people in Hackney whose needs are very different to those of my parishioners in Parliament whose needs, again, are different but no less a need what are the needs of your parishioners in Parliament? How would you characterise that? I think that? parishioners in Parliament, I see a need for them to be supported. The press eats at them. The press is like a sort of piranha, always looking for a way of pulling them down and getting them naked to bare bones, as it were. And that can be so destroying And so it is important for me to uphold them in prayer, to encourage them, to sometimes speak the truth to the press, to say back off, or to speak the truth to them too. Good. (laughs) 
<laughs> Let's go to your final passage, which is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. What does this mean to you? You know, sometimes in life you have experiences, experiences which can be devastating, experiences which almost sort of knocks you down. And, uh, you know, how do you get up from this again? It's almost a sort of Job experience. If you remember in the book of Job, Job is stripped of everything, including his health, his family, everything. And his wife, his friends say to him, look, you've come to the end. Why don't you just curse God and die? And Job's response was, in spite of all this, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And this passage of scripture from Habakkuk is an equivalent to, I know that my Redeemer liveth. It is an equivalent to the story of Jacob in the Old Testament, who hangs on to the angel and says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And so this passage in Habakkuk in particularly came to life for me when we had the recent woman bishops vote, which came to nothing, really. And all around me, there was people who were absolutely devastated, really rock bottom. But throughout, this passage just kept welling up inside me. And so it prevented me from getting to that place of no return, from getting to that place of despair in the church, (laughs) not despair in God, but despair in the church and its structures. A church that we often think does not appreciate women, does not respect women. And this was another blow to women generally within the church. And this just came alive to me and prevented me from getting to that place of despair. So in spite of all those things not happening, yet I am going to rejoice in the Lord my God. He is my strength. And and if I can stay rejoicing in him, then it doesn't matter what other silly votes will come in the future. You've spoken about the benefits that women offer to church leadership in the past, but I think you've also said you wouldn't accept a bishopric if a church ever offered it to women. Why on earth not? I don't know whether I said I wouldn't. What I have said is that both for myself and other women that I know, I don't know of any woman who is sitting down desperately saying, oh, I want to be a bishop. And so I think that's what I'm trying to say, that I'm not sitting down thinking, oh, I I want to be a bishop, I want to be a bishop. If it was offered to me, I would need to think about it. I would never go out of my way to assume that it is my God-given right to be a bishop. I think I'm called to serve, and that I'm doing now, that I'm very content with. 
and would not go out of my way personally to apply or to be a bishop. If the church said to me, we would like you to be, then I would need to think about it and I would need to pray about it to make sure that that is really God's will. Do you have a sense that God has a a purpose for you? Oh, I think God has a purpose for all of us. And I think that I am fulfilling that purpose. And that purpose is being faithful, firstly, to God and loving, loving and serving those whom he has called me to minister to, to serve. I think that is my purpose. Thank you, Rose. I'm Louisa Fox, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the platform for people who think there's more to life than the purely material. Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.